Now, the James Webb Telescope, it looks small in size when you're thinking of it from back there in the back row, but those are people. Um, and this is 10 times the size of the Hubble Telescope. And so James Webb actually was originally created, the idea was starting in around the year 2000. And they had set out for about a 10-year plan to make this telescope happen. They set out with a budget of $1 billion. So the James Webb Telescope in 2000 was going to be $1 billion. This was, quote, unquote, the most expensive science project ever conducted. The most expensive science project What's interesting about this whole entire James Webb telescope is the complexity of the telescope because nothing a part of this telescope existed for it to be on the telescope. In other words, it had to be invented and created as it went. And what's interesting about this story is it actually launched. Remember, the idea was started in 2000. It launched on December 25th, 2021. Maybe you even got to watch it go into orbit. At that date, the James Webb Telescope cost roughly $8.8 .8 billion. And it was roughly 14 years past its due date. I share this with you because this one telescope here is giving us images now that we've never seen before. In other words, the cost that it went into this telescope gave us something, though, that we could have never imagined. And I say this because this entire telescope was an interesting science project. Even its first 30 days to its destination, it had to go a million miles where it's going to, quote, live. And it orbits the sun. And this is a picture that it sent back from one of its first transmissions called the Cosmic Cliffs. Maybe you saw this circling around social media. And there's other images that you can find of this telescope. It's giving us images that arguably we've never seen before, nothing the Hubble telescope was even capable of, we're getting these pictures back. This is not Photoshop, friends. This is the author and creator of what he can do, just in called the cosmic cliffs. Now, I share this story with you because the first 30 days of this entire journey for James Webb Telescope was 30 days. It had 30 days to get to its destination, and this is what they called their first 30 days of orbit. It was called the 30 Days of Terror. you got to think, there's $8.8 .8 billion invested into this project. In 2011, one congressman stood up in front of the council and said, we should probably let this project go because it's costing us too much money. In other words, this project started to appear as a failure because especially the first 30 days of its whole entire existence into the orbit, it only had 344 possible points of failure. Translation, 345 points of uh, failure turns into space junk. $8.8 .8 billion would just float away into orbit. However, again, we're able to transmit with this and get pictures, but I, I say this because today's topic is about failure. And it's a topic that I think many of us don't like to talk about. I thought the three F's that we're doing here last week was finances, this week is failure, and next week will be friendships. And I don't know which one's more fearful to talk about, finances or failure, because we both have a problem with both of them, don't we? But the idea is this one project had 344 possible points of failure. One too many, and the project is deemed completely useless. I thought to myself, what an interesting picture of how we as humans view the world that we live in. That we are a product 
of our failures. That we are only as good as the last mistake. Many of us, we don't slow down to realize that it's not just our failures that define us, but we all experience failure. I think that's one thing in this room. If we were to go around and say, have you ever failed? None of us are excluded. And I think that goes to say something about being truly human in this world we live in. And I don't know what you have lived through in your life, but I just want to give you this. There's a key fundamental for being human. This is in your listening notes if you want to take, take notes today. A key fundamental to being human, experiencing failure. Friends, we're going today. Experiencing failure. Because here's the thing. I think oftentimes, especially as Christ followers, we are guilty for trying to be perfect. We strive to not make mistakes. We strive to do it, but yet every single day, you and me, especially parents in the room, kids have a wonderful way of reminding you that we fail. Small, sure, also big. And I say that because I think oftentimes we're afraid to address a topic like experiencing failure. But here's the reality of failure, I think. I'm going to call it the reality of failure. We have some words in the Christian church that are just taboo. Here's some words that I would argue when you hear them in the church, people get a little anxious. Words like doubt. If you have doubt in church, well, that's not allowed in church. We don't have doubt, right? What about disappointment? You hear the word disappointment and you instantly hear, you instantly think of all the things in your life that didn't go the way you wanted. Maybe fear. This is a, a word in the church that I, I, I was going to joke and I asked my wife if this was too far and she said it was, but here we go. I said that <laughs> fear, fear is, 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 is the F word in the church. You don't say it. We're not fearful. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. But fear, no, don't say fear. And, and I say that because I think fear and failure go one in the same. We're not, we don't like to talk about those words. We, let's just go into the church and act like everything's perfect for an hour, at least one, one time a week. And then we leave and you're already getting to the parking lot, right? And someone cuts you off. And then you say something in front of your kids and it, it's instant, or you say something to your wife or it's at lunch or you know, it's 30 minutes after you're, quote, trying to come, come in here and be perfect. And here's the thing, church. I want you to understand this. The goal today and even going to church, is not to be perfect. I think many times that's the what we sell. You're a sinner. You need to be saved. Follow Jesus. Amen. See you next week. Right? Like, that's, that's, that's a very, that's not necessarily untrue, okay, that we're, we're failures. But the reality is it's, it's a missing truth, that there's so much more to why we're here. That's the reality, is why are we here you know, I have a, a reality check that I'm calling failure is a guarantee. This is, an, this is Alex's encouraging sermon today. Failure is a guarantee. You can have your money back, okay? Because here's the thing. Failure is going to happen. And I think as the church, we're guilty of not talking about what to do when you fail. We love success. But the reality is there's something that failure teaches us that success cannot and uh, I've got some quotes for you, obviously, since it's, uh, it's a Super Bowl Sunday, I figured it would be right to only talk about the goat, Michael Jordan. And maybe you've heard this quote before, but this quote is what he said, and, and obviously it's a really cool, I think it's a, either a Nike commercial or whatever that he says it, but this is what he says, this is Michael Jordan. 
I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I've failed over and over and over again in my life. And that's why I succeed. Another quote by another pastor, he says this, so we'll go from sports to ministers. When people fail, we are inclined to find fault with them. But if you look more closely, you will find that God has some particular truth for them to learn, which the trouble they are in is to teach them. In other words, failure is a great teacher. And obviously the business brain, Robert Kiyosaki, I think that's how you say his name, he says, sometimes you win, and sometimes you learn. And, and, and I say this because obviously we've all, as humans, right, some of my teenagers in the room, you might think of failure, what's a failure? Well, you, gotta, you failed a test, right? That's a pretty common thing to, to, to fail, right? Maybe you didn't, maybe it was just me on that one. Um, I was not good in math, but the idea is we, we experience failure young as a young children, right? And we don't harp our kids when they fail. In other words, when my son falls down or does something that I would say is ridiculous and you, you deserve that, the idea is he's learning. And I thought to myself, you know, as humans, there's one picture I can show you that you and me both get a gut feeling. It doesn't even matter if you're guilty or not. You ready for it? It's this picture. <laughs> there is nothing like looking behind you and seeing this picture. Now, if you're trying to figure out what this picture is, this is not me, but this is a picture that someone took of them getting pulled over. And I want to share with you a story because if you don't know this or not, um, this last year, 2023, me and my family have been at Westside for a year. And I thought that was pretty cool. I thought that was pretty cool. But see, there's something about that whole journey that you guys don't really know because obviously as a pastor, it's not something you're going to brag about. Um, and maybe some of you know where this is going. But for a few months, we were trying to sell our house in Springfield before we moved and that required us to drive on the, on the Sunday mornings. We would drive to here to come to church because we wanted to be a part of the church as, as, as soon as we could. And so me and my wife, we would leave Springfield at 6.30 a.m. And we'd make the three-hour drive to get here for the one. At that time, it was still just the 10 a.m. service. And, you know, sometimes it's like husbands and wives. You ever, like, and maybe you're not like us, but we're always like, do you want to drive today? I don't know. Do you want to drive? I'm like, well, I'll, I guess I'll drive today, right? Because Megan loves driving long distances. And I personally just... I just let her, because, yeah, I do too. But, but there was one particular time on a Sunday morning where I was driving, and obviously, you know, cruise control is your best friend is the whole point of this story, okay? Because um, normally I'm a, I'm a product of cruise control. I don't, I just go, you know, you know, five over, you're fine. It's like the whole eight, you're great, nine, you're mine type of thing. Like, you, you know, you have those <laughs> preconceived ideas that, the, that they're not going to come pull you over. And so we get, you know, 45 minutes out of Springfield, and, there we're, and we're driving. I don't have cruise control on for whatever reason. I'm just driving. It's early. It, at this time, it's like 7-something. And we come up on a hill, and I can't remember if it's like Houston, Missouri, or something like that, maybe that, or Texas County is what it was. All these random, all these random names we've got in Missouri, right? Uh, but we get through Texas County, and we come up on a hill, and I look over, and there it is, a white Dodge Charger. And it was marked, obviously, and I looked, but he was on the other side of the street, and I was like, surely he's not going to come get me. <laughs> Said the worst ever, right? And so about four seconds later, I see him, you know, obviously it's just like what all of us do when you pass a cop, and I know there's some police officers in here. I don't know what it is. We're just built this way. But you instantly look in the rear view. You're like, is he coming? <laughs> is he coming? 
And friends, he got me for sure. <laughs> he got me for sure. Um, and so this is just me getting my guilty conscience free here. But the idea was, it was funny too, because we didn't have Judah with us, our, our son, but, but we did have the car full of stuff because we were starting to move stuff into the parsonage office and we were going to try to make the most of every trip. And so I remember trying to plead with him. I'm like, sir, we're going to church. <laughs> like, like, there's stuff, like I'm moving for the church and like I try to be so noble. And literally it was the shortest conversation ever, license, license and insurance. And I was like, comes back, writes me a ticket, 16 over. I learned my story. Now listen, it was in a 70, okay? I was just, you know, or 65, so chill out. But kids, if you're learning to drive, that's too fast, okay? That's not what you want. But the point of this whole story, I'll say it, I'm trying to say it quickly, but there's a lot of details of that story that I want to make sure it gets out. That in those moments, right, especially even as an adult, right, and you're like, I'm going to be a pastor, and you get pulled over and you get a ticket. And you're like, no one is truly excluded from the law, okay? So I say that because, again, we experience failure, even as adults. But here's the thing. When you get a speeding ticket, there's a lesson. There's a lesson there, right? The cops just doing their job, okay? I don't want to think. I know Foster, Matt Foster, one of our board members, is a highway patrolman. And when he said he used to do stuff, it was he's like, they're just doing their job. They're just paying their families. But the idea is this. Here's our big idea for today as we get moving through the text. With every loss, there is a lesson. With every loss, there is a lesson. I said it to our staff, and obviously it's, it's something that you always try to give your staff some excitement, you know, with things, and you try to word them and make axioms for them, and they can write them down and learn them, which, whatever, I was never really that good at it. But there was one I remember saying to one of our staff, and it was, we don't take L's, we take lessons. In other words, there's, in sports, there's winners and losers, there's W's and there's L's, and you'll see the stats for a sports team of how well they are or whatever. But the idea is, with, we don't take L's, we take lessons. And the, the big idea, again, is with every loss, there is a lesson. But here's my conviction as we continue to look at 2 Corinthians and what the, the whole entire, honestly, the met, what they call a meta-narrative of Scripture tells us something interesting about failure. I don't know what your experience has been coming to church and what you've come to, to learn about Jesus, but there's something that I, I think oftentimes we're guilty that we don't even see it. it it's, it's the blinders that we have of Scripture just wanting to teach us to be holy, which is true, but I think it's also trying to expose to us that God is experienced with failing humans. This is, this is a, a story and a narrative that oftentimes we don't, we don't like to think about that God can use imperfect people for his perfect plan. Oftentimes we think, I just need to be perfect to fit into God's perfect plan. And the reality is, Scripture is constantly reminding us that God uses imperfect people all the time. And I say this because I think oftentimes when we read Scripture, or even when we read someone's failure, we think that the Lord abandons them. And here's the thing, church, many of us in this room think if you fail God, he will abandon you. And the reality is in Scripture, we're reminded over and over again that God doesn't abandon us in our failures. He rescues us in them. He's a rescuer, not an abandoner. And I thought to myself, you know, I don't know if you have ever read the book of Genesis. Some of you are doing your year in a Bible, so you're probably in Exodus by now. You might even be getting close to the end of Exodus. If you're really religious, you're doing the chronological, so you had to throw Job in there, and you're like, what's going on? I love it. But the idea is when you're reading Genesis, you start to see this narrative that, that gets painted of the first two pages. God creates a world, creates some people, 
creates plants, creates animals. He's creating all of this. He's creating the land, the sky, night and day. Then a few moments later, we see siblings, and all of a sudden we see failure happening in Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. And then we see Noah, and you start to see this idea that God creates a world, and he's, not, he's unhappy with his creation. His creation doesn't want to actually worship him. To, 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 in other words, worship the created thing versus the creator. Honestly, something we're all guilty of. But the idea is in, in Genesis, just in the first ten chapters, we're given a story of humanity. What is the Bible about? I could argue just look at the first ten chapters. Because all of that first ten chapters is all about God and his creation. In the beginning, God. What does that say? God was before the beginning. Okay? If you can figure all that out, then you can come up here. Okay? Because I'm still trying to figure that out. Next, we'll do the Trinity. But the idea is the first 10 chapters, we're seeing a whole picture of God and creation. And then in Genesis 11, something happens. If you look at your Bibles, Genesis 11, something happens where God picks one family. Okay, he picks out one family amidst all of them. After the Tower of Babel, one family is chosen to be God's chosen people. And then it goes from one family. Then we see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then they end up in Egypt, where then we start the book of Exodus. And they don't even know who Joseph is is, which is one of the sons of Jacob. So you then you have a book of Exodus, which is there in slavery. And what we have is this whole story continuing on, where then God uses that one family, turns them into a nation out of all the nations, and says, this nation will be a blessing to all the nations. And the rest of the Old Testament, not to downplay the Old Testament, but after this, we have the law then given to God's people so that it's a guide for them. It's a flashlight in the dark is how the 613 laws would be given to Israel. And they were to live, to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with their God, as Micah says. And they failed. And so they have plagues. They have captivity. We have all of these things in the Old Testament. Then we have the prophets that come into the Old Testament where they're calling God's people back to God that says, we've fallen, come back to God. And we see this story that God is never abandoning his people. And what's interesting about this story, I mean, just to give you an idea here, I love the way that this is worded. Adam failed as a husband. Any, any husbands in here that think you could do a little bit better? Moses had a temper. Not even going to ask us if we have tempers, right? David murdered. Now, some of you are thinking actually murdered, but how you think of people, you write them off. Elijah had depression. Jonah struggled with God's mercy. Jonah wept and had depression. Peter doubted. Paul murdered. I mean, this is, this is the long line of Bible characters. Which one are you going to be for Halloween, right? Because they all have a flaw. And I think oftentimes we glorify these characters in Scripture. And this is what I want to remind us today is when we get to the New Testament, something happens. They call it the 400 years of silence where God doesn't speak to their people, to his people. But then we have out of this root of Jesse, the Bible says, there's a light that dawns. In the darkness, there's a light that dawns. And this is where we get the beautiful picture of the Messiah. The coming king is going to shine this light into the darkness. And all the darkness will not be able to extinguish it. There's going to be something that happens. And this is where we get the beautiful parts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Gospels. And see, God rescues us by becoming flesh and entering a world of fear and failure. 
In other words, definitely not abandoning, but rescuing them. How does he rescue them? Look at the Gospels. Look what they teach us. Jesus is coming to bring a kingdom, something that gives you and me life, not death. Me and you are really good at death, by the way. You know how we do that? Just think for ourselves. Follow your heart. And we see in the Gospels that Jesus is constantly calling the people that are cast out, that are the ones that have failed. They didn't make rabbi school. All the 12 disciples, all of them had missed their shot. They didn't make the team. But Jesus says, that's the people I'm going to use. I'm going to use those that think they're failures to show them something that will never fail them. And just like that song that you're going to be singing for the rest of the week, he will never fail. Happens to me every time they sing that song. That's what the, the, the gospel is trying to get us to see, that in all of our failures, we turn to the one who's never failed us. And here's the best part about that whole message. He never will fail you. Amen. That's what we see. Now, I say all that to get back to the point of God has experienced in dealing with failing humans. I think oftentimes when you and me fail, though, the one place we don't feel welcome is in God's presence. And to me, this is, this is where, as, as we see, as we turn to Scripture, your struggles and your pain does not prevent you from experiencing the love of Jesus. And that might even be crystallized for you. But experiencing peace amongst tragedy, you can have that peace. Some of us in this room today aren't even following Jesus. And here's the thing, I don't come to condemn you. I come to tell you that I know someone that can handle all the pain and doubts that you're living with. Some of us in this room have failed more times than we can count. And we, we constantly think, I'm just going to fail again soon anyway. Why even try? Some of us live with this narrative in our minds. And here's what I want to do is just show us that even in just two passages, one in James and one in Romans, where we see that God is not afraid to experience with us in our, in our depths of failure. He's present. Let me read to you James 1, 2, and 3. This is obviously a verse if you've been in church for a while, you know this one. James 1, verse 2 and 3, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let your steadfastness have its full effect, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Translation, your trials are perfecting in you the beautiful love and hope of Jesus. Romans 5, verse 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Again, a hope that you don't think is even possible has made itself known. And we, we get to this idea today that I have a question. It's a quote and then a question. One of the pastors, he's a, also a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, Charles Swindle. He's a great old, great old preacher. And he says this when he talks about God and failure, and this is what he says to his church. I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. In other words, most of us have that flip-flopped. But it's 10% what happens to us, 90% of how we 
react. So I have some questions for you as an application in your listening guide. This is the questions. How would you describe your faith journey right now? And here's what we're going to do is we're going to give you some, some practicals. Are you enduring life or enjoying life? Are you enduring life or enjoying life? So I think, again, there's a conception that you can't enjoy life and follow Jesus. But friends, what we just heard from Paul is he's going to rejoice in his suffering because he knows that his suffering is building in a hope within him. So in other words, are you enduring life or enjoying life? The second question is, are you seeking God to make you happy or to make you holy? Now, I'm not saying happiness is a bad thing, but friends, if you're here to feel happy, you ain't going to get it from me, that's for sure. I don't say that as a condemnation. I say that because if the goal is to be happy here, what do you tell the person with cancer next to you? I mean, let's just call it what it is. The one that's experienced loss this week. You want to feel happy? What about them? Oh, no, 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 this, that's not, no, I'm not here. I'm not, I'm not here for me. It's a me and God thing. They, 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 I'm sorry for them, of course. I'll pray for them, but are you happy? Or are you wanting to be holy? Holy just means set apart. Great way to think about holy. What is holy translation? Your bathroom. You don't go eating in your bathroom, right? Your bathroom is holy. There you go. Are you happy or holy? It's set apart. Third question is, are you simply surviving or fearlessly thriving? See, I think there's, a, there's, a, there's another temptation in the church today, and that's just to survive. I'm just one day at a time. Which, obviously, is how you live life. It's a 24-hour day, right? But the idea is, I think, many of us, we, we try to get in this mentality that we're just surviving and not thriving. We're experiencing day-to-day stress and anxiety. I mean, just this last week, our son had to have a surgery where he's on anesthesia, and he's fine. Praise the Lord, and thank you so much for those of you that sent us food and all of those things. But I say that because as I watch my three-year-old go through a surgery of, is he surviving or thriving? And because of the surgery, he can then thrive and have a beautiful life. I thought to myself, what a picture, what it means to either survive or thrive. There is a difference, friends. There is a difference. Because, see, for you and me, thriving is knowing who we are in Christ. Surviving is always just questioning where we stand with God. Am I, am I really in His love? Am I really in Christ? Or am I thriving where I'm fearlessly chasing after Him? There is no question in my mind. Though He's quiet, Mother Teresa, beautiful humanitarian, Catholic woman, this is what she said. After she died, she said she wanted her letters to be completely destroyed. You know why she said that? Because she had done so much good for the glory of God that she experienced such a darkness of God that she didn't want people to know about it. This is, this is the truth. This is Mother Teresa. Thousand plus charities set up under her name. Thousands upon thousands have been cared for. And yet the woman we would claim, Mother Teresa, canonized her name in the Catholic Church. She experienced doubt and failure. So the idea is not that you're simply surviving, but it's thriving amongst the darkness. They called Mother Teresa the saint of darkness. I love that. She wasn't wasn't ignorant to darkness, but she thrived in the darkness. Church, that's you and me. We thrive in the dark. Why? Because we have the light within us. We have the light within us. And what I want to do now is just simply look at 2 Corinthians for the time we have remaining. In this whole book, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, these are two letters that Paul writes to the church in Corinth. And 
I, I, I set it up this way because I really do want you to read the whole book of 2 Corinthians in your own time. I had plans to read a little bit more than I'm going to, but we're going to read 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 7, and we're going to go all the way through 18. But here's what I want you to just know, okay, as we look at the scriptures. Paul knew what failure was like. If you don't know anything about the Apostle Paul, there's very, very clean thought is he was a Pharisee. He worked for the church. And what happened is there was someone named Jesus going around claiming to be God, which was blasphemy. The sentence for that was death. And so after he's murdered and put in a tomb, there's rumors that he raised, but Paul has a job to do. So he goes around killing Christians, ripping Christians' moms, dads, kids out of their homes and killing them. This was this J-O-B. This was his job. And he has an encounter with the Lord. And what we see is Paul's entire ministry is filled with failure. Many times we, we, th- we see someone like Paul and we think, how noble. If he only knew that 13 of his letters would be canonized in our Bibles today and that we would read them as Holy Scripture. But the reality is Paul is simply living a life. And friends, I argue what he says here in just the first few verses it's a life of experiencing constant failure. Read with me first, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We'll come back to that, but let me just read you this, these few verses. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Oh, isn't that just, it's, it's poetic, but the reality is for this, for this person writing it, for Paul, this is his life. He's not trying to write a poem. He's trying to give you a promise that even though you might feel those things, are you afflicted in any way, right? We could take a survey of the room. <laughs> are you afflicted in any way? Do you feel crushed? Well, praise God, you're, not, you're you know, perplexed, but you're not driven to despair. You're persecuted, but you're not forsaken. doesn't mean you're forsaken. What an interesting concept. Struck down, but not destroyed. You might feel like you've been knocked off your high horse. But the reality is it's because it's to remind you of your identity and who it's in. This is, this is Paul talking about you are literally clay pots. I love this idea. That Paul would use the treasure. This is even where we get in our English language the word thesaurus. A storehouse, a treasure of something. A storehouse of words is a thesaurus. This is literally for Paul. But we have this treasure. This treasure. What's the treasure? It's the gospel of Jesus. It's the good news of Jesus. And, And this is where he says, but this treasure is put into clay pots. What an interesting picture. Especially for us today, we're like, clay pots? What's that about? And obviously, when we look at Paul's audience, they would know that clay jars were, you would put things in them, but friends, here's the idea. Those clay jars would be broken. They wouldn't endure. Interesting enough, we even found the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were actually, the scrolls themselves were in little clay pots in the Qumran caves. So people would use these clay jars, but they would know that they were essentially meant to be broken for what's inside of them. And what an interesting 
picture that Paul gives them. I mean, Paul's constantly talking to the church in Corinth. I mean, he's visited them. Paul started this church. And what happened in this church, just a little side note, Paul's literal existence was starting to be questioned by the church. Paul, honestly, I love Paul. You know why? Because even in his own letter, you know what the church says about Paul? He's not really that good with words. <laughs> Amen, brother. Okay? The idea is Paul, Paul is a preacher, but he's also a pastor. And, and there's a lot of people in the church that can talk real good. And Paul's saying that's not the point. The point is that you're a new creation. That there's, no, there's nothing in you that, that is, God didn't put in you. God put it all in you. You are literally an embodiment of his love. And Paul talks about this throughout his letters. There's sins in the church. One of the greatest sins for Paul in 1 Corinthians is even about communion. The rich people were getting drunk, having a blast. The poor people were getting off work late. They were coming in. There was nothing left for them. They had made this church thing just a little social hour. Now, we wouldn't be guilty of such a thing, would we? And Paul himself is trying to constantly remind the church in Corinth of, in all their failure to come back to him. Again, he's reminding them, are you afflicted in every way? But you're not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Continuing on in verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And listen to the way Paul writes it. So death is at work in us, but life in you. I love the way the Message Bible puts it. This is what Eugene says in the Message Bible. Just a different paraphrasing of, obviously, the, the closest literal translation we can get to, to a paraphrase. What they did to Jesus, they do to us. Trial and torture, mockery and murder. What Jesus did among them, he does in us. He lives. Our lives are at a constant risk for Jesus' sake, which makes Jesus' life all the more evident in us. While we were going through the worst, you're getting in on the best. In other words, in our suffering, friends, we proclaim God's power over our suffering. Are you experiencing failure? Having hope lets you triumph over those failures. Listen, we're going to fail. Parents, you're going to fail. Teenagers, you're going to fail. The point is that it's not a, this is what I like to say today. Failure is simply a stop. It is not a destination. There's more journey to go. It might be more failure, but here's the thing, friends. Failure is not our destination. Failure is not a destination. So here's what I want to do is go back, just give you this. For the journey of failure in your listening guide, from verses 7 through 10, we are rescued from our failures. We are rescued from our failures. Even Paul says it when he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. And then look what he says, to show that the surpassing power belongs to who? To you and all your beauty? No, we're the clay pots. It's the treasures his. It's what he's put in us. Again, he's rescued us from our failures in the midst of all of that. Verses 13 through 15, let me read those to you now. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been, has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe 
And so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. See, friends, this is where we, we sang over and over today. I sought the Lord, and he heard, and he answered. This is the beautiful part about when we read in Scripture, to ask, to seek, to knock. This is, this is where we're called to come to God, not, not because he knows or he doesn't know what we need. He's fully aware. The reality is you and me, we have to come to the realization you can't do it on your own. This is where we have the second point is we are redeemed in our failures. In your failure, you can know the love of Jesus. Now listen, if your life has been peachy all the way through this, then hey, praise God for that. I can tell you right now, just being about to be 32, which I know is very young to many of you, I can tell you this, that I have failed way more times than I, can, than I have succeeded. That I would argue, I look back these last few months, and it's hard not to feel like a failure. The reality is, you also have those same feelings. You look back and all you really feel is, I've failed. How can the Lord really, yeah, I gave it my all, but like, was it enough? And this is the reality, even as a dad of a soon-to-be four-year-old. I mean, he's talking, he's talking back, he's doing all of it. And I start to think, am I, am I doing enough? Am I failing at teaching him? What? And it's, it's a constant cloud of darkness that I live with. I don't... I'm not trying to act like a perfect person up here. I want you to hear me loud and clear. If anyone experiences failure in the church, it's the pastors. I'm going to fail you one day. Surprise. I know you probably don't want to hear that today. But listen, you're going to fail me. And you may leave, you may stay, whatever. But here's what I do know. Is that the Lord will never fail me because I can never fail him, because he knows everything that's going to happen in my life. Amen. Nothing takes him by surprise. Amen. And I think many of us in this room, though, is this is where we start to think it's, it's a, it's a we, when you fail, that's just who you are, man. You're a failure. So you don't know my story, all of it. But I will say this. There's two numbers in my life, K70799 and K72064. Those are two numbers. I don't even think you need to know what they mean. But it reminds me that my parents' identity used to be a number. And that number reminded them of their failure every single day because what the prison system does to you is they remove your name and they give you a number to make you realize that you don't have an identity. Now, if you agree with that or not, that's fine. But the reality is, as a product of two parents that went to prison for more than a decade apiece, that's the reality that I live with. When someone says, where are your parents? What do your parents do? Well, my dad passed away after he got out of prison, and well, my mom went to prison, and she, yeah. Well, what about you? What do your parents do? And then you instantly feel like a failure. Now, how, how does this work? I don't know. And again, this is just me being super vulnerable for you. Because the reality is, I think you think that I can get up here and we're just perfect. And for Paul, he's saying, listen, I can be a product of God. I can be used by God. I'm still going to break. I'm still broken. You're still broken. 
I know we want to be whole, but you have to realize only he's the one that's keeping us together. He's the one that put the jar together. He's the potter. We're the clay. This is the reality that Paul is talking about. Look what he even says. Let's continue on. We'll start to close. That we are restored above our failures. Listen to what Paul says in verse 16. We are restored above our failures. So we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, and I just, I have that, that word just, those two words just circled. This momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all com- uh, comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. See, friends, this is, this is where we end today, that we're restored above our failures. For Paul to say, we do not lose heart, that's the second time he said it in that chapter. Even in your failures, here's my call to you, don't lose heart. What you're experiencing is a light, and I know, it's, I know that almost sounds offensive. I know some of us in this room this week have had to go to the hospitals, funeral homes. I get it. This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That, my friends, is the lesson of failure. Is to remind you that these failures are a lesson for us. It's the big idea. With every loss, there is a lesson. The question is, are we going to learn? Are we just going to let our failure become everything we are? This is kind of the only last thing I have is what you focus on, you become. You focus on all your failures and fear, you're going to become a very fearful person. And you're going to live in a constant state of anxiety. And here's the thing, I don't, I don't want to act like what I'm saying is, is not painful. Because I think for some of us in the room, the level of anxiety that we live with is trauma, what you're, what you're living with. It's trauma. And I think we need to remind ourselves when it comes to Scripture that God is with us in those moments. I mean, not only has he rescued us from our failures, he's redeemed us in, but here's the thing again, he's restored us above them. He's going to bring you through it. It's a light, momentary affliction. Momentary. I love it. God's word's eternal. Your afflictions are momentary. Let that be the message today. Let that be the message today, that when we fail, we look to him. He'll never fail you. He never has failed you. The fact that you're in this place today, friends, let me remind you, you're not a failure. You're going to make it. You know why? Because he made a way. It's not by anything I say. Pray with me. Jesus, a topic like this reminds us of those that you had dinner with, that you lived life with. They were the outcast, the throwaways, the sick, the lame, the blind. And that was exactly who you came to save. Not those who think they're righteous but those of us that are sick. 
And Lord, today I pray for anyone in this room today that's willing to admit that they're sick, that they need a healer, that they're hurting, that they're hopeless. I pray, Lord, that you would meet them right now. Though they may feel like a failure, you will never fail them. Lord, I pray for healing in a place like this where we come and we want to act like everything's okay, but everything's still waiting for us outside those doors. All our failures are going to remind us when we check our phone and our Facebooks, we get back to our work and our emails. But Lord, I pray you meet us in our failures and remind us that in your eyes, that we're your children. And like the parable of the prodigal son, that when you see your child coming home, that you don't, even, you, you don't even just stay on the porch. You run out to us and embrace us. That you're a good father. If we know how to give good gifts to our kids, then oh my goodness, what good gifts can you give us from above? You're a good God. You call us your children. You want, you want life for us, not death. You want joy for us, not pain. And so, Lord, for those in the room that are feeling this light momentary affliction, I pray we don't lose heart. Let you be the one living in us, guiding us in the darkness, making us a saint of darkness. Lord, we praise you. We give you glory with these clay pots that we call our lives. We give them as an offering to you. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.